Well, good morning, River City Church. It's genuinely really great to be here with you. Uh, my name is John Lightbody. I'm a pastoral candidate here, sort of a pastor in training. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'd just love to say hi after service. Uh, I also want to say, like Becca said, if you're new or visiting, welcome. Like, we're genuinely really glad to have you here. I also want to welcome you into our preaching series. We are three weeks into a series we're going to be in throughout the fall, uh, preaching through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Right? So this, these uh, two books were letters written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And this is a church he and his friends Silas and Timothy had very recently planted. And if you look at the book of Acts in chapter 17, it catalogs the story of this church plant. And it says that over the course of about three weeks, while Paul and Silas and Timothy, they are preaching the gospel in the Jewish synagogues, that a large number of people in the city come to faith in Jesus. But the Jewish leaders in that city, they're jealous of the following these men have garnered, and so they chase Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of Thessalonica. And what's more, they're so upset about them preaching the gospel, they chase them out of Berea, the next city they're church planting in as well. So their stance on the gospel is pretty clear. Um, so Paul is writing this letter to this young church plant, understandably concerned about how they're doing. And so he, he sends Timothy, one of his friends, to go check on the church in Thessalonica. And what he finds is not only is this young church plant surviving, it's actually thriving and doing amazingly well in the midst of all this opposition. Right? And the central theme, as we've been discussing the last two weeks, of these two letters is the second coming of Christ. And this is something Jesus himself taught about. And this is the notion that Jesus will return one day in glory to rule as king forever, where he will eradicate all evil. He will usher in his good kingly rule. And as Brandon discussed last week, Paul's goal is writing these two letters. He's not trying to answer like trivia questions that this church has about that day in the future. No, instead he's trying to help them understand the confident hope we can approach the day of Jesus' return with, right, and how that transforms their lives and our lives today. Because you see, faith in Jesus and his return, it produces a sanctifying hope in us. It changes how we think, how we act, how we relate to other people, but also how we relate to God. And in our passage today, we're going to see Paul explain that the sanctifying hope that comes from anticipating Jesus' return is directly tied up with whether or not we believe that the gospel is the very word of God, or if it's just a man-made human idea. So as we dive into today's passage, we're going to see that when we believe that the message of the gospel is the very word of God, it enables us to expect and endure opposition with hope. You see, if we hear something incredible, something that's hard to believe, whether or not we believe it comes largely from who is telling us. And if we believe the gospel is a human or man-made idea, we will oppose it or reject it altogether. But if we see the truth, that the gospel is the very word of God, it will change us in the deepest possible way. So this morning, we're going to discuss what God's word is in this passage, in Paul's letter to Thessalonica. We're going to discuss how it works in those who believe it, and how it works in those who don't. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll dive in here this morning. So dear God, uh, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. Uh, we don't deserve that, but you have spoken. And 
God, I pray that you would give us all hearts to listen to what you have to say, God, because it's not like my words that matter this morning. It's your words that matter. So I pray that like whatever comes from you, God, that you would help that to just deeply enter people's hearts and transform their lives. And if there's something that isn't, I pray that it would just be forgotten. So we just pray over this service as we're entering your word, God, and we just pray that your spirit would move and act for your glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, this is also up on the screen. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. It reads this way. And we, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So Paul begins this morning by making a bold claim. He says, the message that you received from us, it was not ours, but it was the very word of God. And if you read the Bible in like the Old Testament, this is the the portion of your Bible written before Jesus comes to earth, dies and rises again. Uh, You'll see that God sends prophets. And these are people who he appoints to speak his words on his behalf. And if you read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Samuel, you'll see this kind of language come up a lot. It'll say, the word of the Lord came to me, or thus saith the Lord. And the point the prophets are trying to make is this, God has spoken. These are not Jeremiah's words, they are God's words. And this matters because who is speaking makes all the difference on whether or not you should listen to it. So this begs the question, in this passage, when Paul says the word of God What is he talking about? Verse 13, he uses this phrase twice, right? When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. If you're like me, when you hear the phrase, the word of God, the first thing that might enter your mind is the Bible, right? Genesis to Revelation, the 66 book, God has put together his word. I want to first affirm, yeah, the Bible is God's word, absolutely. Uh, From our statement of faith as a church, it says this, we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, and the Bible is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. So the Bible is the word of God, absolutely. However, in this passage, and in most times when the New Testament uses this phrase, the word of God, it's not specifically talking about the revealed text of scripture. It's actually talking about the good news of Jesus. There's a couple of context clues in the letter that we can find this in. First, in verse 16 in the passage we're in today, Paul speaks about the desire to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So what what is the message that saves? Because Paul's trying to bring to the rest of the world the same thing he brought to Thessalonica, the word of God, that they might be saved. And what is the message that saves, right? It's the gospel. The gospel is what saves. Similarly, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we see this. We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and with the Holy Spirit in full conviction. So again, the Bible is the word of God. Full stop. 
But Paul is talking about the word of God specifically as the good news about Jesus. So what is the good news about Jesus, right? What is the gospel? And in fact, if you have like a New Living Translation kicking around anywhere or maybe with you, you'll actually see instead of the word gospel in that translation, it says good news. That's faithful because that's what the word gospel means. And the good news, briefly, is this. That God is morally perfect, utterly pure, and transcendently glorious. And the word the Bible uses to describe him and sum all that up is holy. God is holy. What's more, he created us in his image and his likeness to be like mirrors that reflect that glory to the rest of the watching world. But we have committed sin. That is cosmic treason. And treason isn't something we talk about a lot, but in the United States, there's still two things that'll get you the death penalty. Murder, and only in certain special cases, and treason. And treason is all about us saying to God, we will rule over us. We will take your throne, and we will get you off of it. We'll be our own gods. And God, in his holiness and goodness, will not ignore this offense. However, rather than pouring contempt and wrath On rebels like us, he has sent his son Jesus to live perfectly, to die in our place, and to rise again, so that through faith in him and rejecting our sin, which is repentance, we receive the free gift of good relationship with God, right relationship with him. This is called righteousness in the Bible. Now we get to be close to him both now and forever. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 sums up how the Thessalonians believed in this gospel. Paul writes, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And this gospel is a unique message. In uh, Thessalonica at the time, what was rampant, what everyone did is, is idol worship, right? And so there was a system of these Roman gods and goddesses, and if you had a need or you just wanted to not be smited, you would appease these different gods in the respective temples with their respective religious rites. So if you wanted a good crop, you'd go to the god of the harvest and you'd make a sacrifice and hope he or she would you know, be appeased and give you a good harvest. If you wanted to get pregnant and have a family, you'd go to the temple of Dionysus. You would offer her a sacrifice and hope that that would be good enough. But the truth is, even though this particular system of religion is gone, it's the same as every other one, right? Religion says this, there is a list of rules, you must follow it, and if you do, if you do a good job, you'll be accepted. And in religion, that's that you'll be loved and accepted by God, but in secular humanism, you're you're a good person, right? But either way, you have to measure up. There is a standard, get to work. And it's only the gospel that says you could never meet the standard, You don't even meet your own standard, let alone God's. But Jesus has done it for you. And so through faith in him, you are made right with God. And you live for him out of thankfulness for what he has done. When writing about the uniqueness of the gospel message, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, said this, This is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It has just that weird twist about it that real things have. You see, the gospel isn't a man-made idea. It is God's idea. 
However, it's also offensive in many ways, right? It states that we are sinners that need to be rescued, that we cannot rescue ourselves, that we deserve God's punishment, that we must fully submit all of our lives to Jesus, that to realize him as Savior, we have to realize him as Lord and as our great treasure. Also, our Lord has promised us difficulty if we're going to be his disciples. Four separate times in the four Gospels, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. So we see here that the message Paul is preaching is the undiluted, full, true gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the word of God in this passage. And as we move forward, we're going to see how believing that it is the word of God transforms and affects these uh, believers in Thessalonica. Let's take a look again at verses 14 and 15. It says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches that are in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. And you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And so what we see next in our passage this morning is that despite the difficulty and despite the offense, this young church has believed the gospel and they are holding on tight. And I want to be clear here and just take a moment Paul's point in writing these verses is to encourage this young church because he has been so encouraged by their faith. He is saying, Thessalonians, right, the whole world has heard about your faith in Jesus, as we heard back in chapter 1 a couple weeks ago. Paul is affirming these new believers because they've believed the capital T truth of the gospel. He's commending them, even when it got tough, your faith in Jesus has endured. You are holding on to Jesus as he holds on to you. There's a few things to unpack as we look at these verses if we want to understand them. And the first is that for Paul, suffering as a follower of Jesus is an expectation. Verse 14 again, you became imitators of the churches of God that are in Christ Jesus in Judea. So Judea, right, this is the Jewish homeland. This is where the first churches were planted. So as the church is coming after the ascension of Jesus, after Pentecost, we see these first churches, they start to suffer persecution. And as we see the church being planted in Thessalonica, we see them following suit, right? Back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul wrote this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. All right, so there's this pattern of suffering. He's saying, Jesus has suffered. The early churches have suffered, and now you are joining them in that. What's more, Jesus promised this would happen to those who follow him. In John chapter 15, verses 19 through 20, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he has this to say, as it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they certainly did, they will persecute you also. So suffering is an expectation. But second, Paul says that their suffering actually affirms that they belong to Jesus, right? And we got to look for the word for here in this passage. Back in 13, we hear, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe, for you suffered, it's like the churches in Judea, for you suffered. So Paul is linking these two ideas. Your belief that the gospel is the very word of God is linked to your suffering. 
And the reason Paul is making such a big deal about this is he knows when a young church starts suffering as they follow Jesus, they're going to fear that they did something wrong. They might believe the lie that somehow God is like punishing them or disciplining them for something that they've screwed up. But what Paul is trying to affirm here in them is that the exact opposite is actually true. He's saying, your suffering is a mark that your faith is genuine. Back in chapter 1 again, we talked about how there were other reasons Paul had to believe the genuineness of their faith. He talks about their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in Jesus. But here he's specifically pointing out the way that they're being opposed by the surrounding culture is a mark that they really belong to Christ because he was rejected by the culture too. He's saying, guys, you are on the same team as the first churches, as the apostles, as the prophets, and even our Lord himself. You are right where you belong. Third, the word is at work to help them endure with hope. With hope, right? So the Thessalonians, as we discussed, they are spurred on because they believe that what they have received, it's not a man-made idea, it's not a new philosophy, it is the very word of God. They have accepted this truth and it is at work in them. But they're not just enduring this persecution while like gritting their teeth and bearing it. They're actually enduring with joy. Chapter 1 makes this clear in verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is why in verse 13 of chapter 2, Paul is constantly thanking God along with his friends because he knows there is no earthly reason you would come to believe in Jesus, suffer persecution, and then be filled with joy. That doesn't happen unless it's supernatural. God gets the credit for their faith, and he's encouraging them to continue to hold on to him. But as we move forward in this passage, we're going to see that while believing the gospel is God's word, produces fruit in those who believe it, it produces fruit of a very different kind in those who reject it. Back in verse 14 of chapter 2 here, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God. And they're hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, but the wrath of God has come upon them at last. I want to note that the Jews Paul is speaking to here are a very specific group of people who are leaders in Thessalonica who are opposing the work of the gospel. And along with them, the other Jewish leaders who did crucify Jesus sought his arrest and are plotting against the gospel in cities throughout the area. It's important to remember here that this is not like an anti-Semitic sentiment, because Paul himself is a Jew, and if you read the book of Romans, he has so much to say about what it means to be a Jew and a follower of Jesus. He was affirming that. But the specific people he's referring to here have persecuted the church. Again, in Acts chapter 17, if you get a chance to read this chapter, it, it catalogs the whole story of the planting of the church in Thessalonica. And when we see that, we see that the Jewish leaders became jealous of the following Paul, Silas, and Timothy had garnered. And they arrest their host, Jason. They accuse these men of treason. They garner a mob and they chase them out of the city. Note the severity of the language Paul uses here. It says they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Right? Unbelief means killing not only the mouthpieces of God, but the Lord himself. 
they drove us out, right? Their unbelief means chasing away the apostles and those who would carry the good news of the gospel to those who don't know it yet. They displease God and oppose all mankind, everyone, by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. And in this way, they heap up their sins to the limit. This phrase about heaping up their sins to the limit, this is an allusion to a story in Genesis where God is explaining why judgment has not come upon the nation of Canaan yet. You see, because God's wrath, his judgment, it's not a temper tantrum. It's not a fly-off-the-handle, immature kind of thing. No, it is just, patient, measured, intelligent, and even compassionate. Because God will often wait for years, and in the case of Canaan, it was centuries for people to change. But his patience will wear out, and eventually he says, that is enough, and he steps in. See, in our pluralistic society, it might seem really weird to see such a dichotomy between belief and unbelief. Like, is it really true that I either have to admit that I'm a sinner, a rebel against God that needs to be rescued, or I'm going to violently oppose the church? Isn't there sort of like a middle ground, like a live and let live, or maybe like a passive indifference? But the truth is, behind both these attitudes is the same heart, unbelief, which displeases God. And the truth is, this kind of violent opposition, it shows up when the gospel is a threat to you. If you don't believe it's God's word, if you believe it's a man-made idea, you will violently oppose it once it threatens something dear to you. And in the case of these Jewish leaders, it was their power and control over the people. As their allegiance comes to following Jesus and believing the gospel, they are starting to lose their grip and they can't handle it. So what their life is based on is exercising their rule and their authority. And so they react violently against the gospel as it threatens what they have built their life on. You see, when belief in the gospel threatens something you hold dear, your true allegiance will be laid bare. When it comes to Jesus, there is no neutral ground. And here, Paul is actually further encouraging the Thessalonians. When he says God's wrath has come upon them at last, that language, most commentaries will tell you that Paul's trying to communicate the idea that God's wrath hangs over their heads. And hangs over their heads. One pastor explained how Paul's point here is not about anger or vengeance, right? Because Jesus tells us to pray for our persecutors. But rather, his point is encouragement to these believers. So imagine if you had a friend or a family member who had been publicly executed by ISIS. And you were living in constant fear and hiding afraid for your life. And imagine if someone came to you and said, and you really believed it, don't worry, God is going to deal with ISIS. Just hang in there, God is on it. That would breathe hope and encouragement that would give you the strength to hang on. You see, the truth is this morning, God sees his people's suffering and he will hold their persecutors to account and it will not take long. So here we come to a difficulty. And this is the thing that I've been praying and thinking about for the last few weeks. How do we come to understand a passage about persecution living in Dubuque in 2023? You see, the truth is the opposition we face is often small or non-existent. 
And the truth is, in Dubuque today, no one is going to prison or being accused of treason or being executed for being a follower of Jesus. And I think the first thing we need to understand and apply is that opposition to the gospel, like it's not an exception, it's an expectation. It's an expectation. I think this can be surprising for us because for most of the people in this room, for all of your life, society and the church have had some kind of relative peace. And the church hasn't faced this kind of violent opposition we're hearing about in this passage. And while we certainly don't know the future, and I don't want to pretend to, it seems like the tide of culture is turning, and that in the years to come, it may very well be much more costly to be followers of Jesus than it is today. There was a book written by a man named John Fox called The Book of Martyrs. It was first published in 1563, and it seeks to undertake a catalog of the suffering of the church from the martyrdom of Stephen in the book of Acts to the day it was published. And in the foreword, he has this to say, In all ages, we find that a disposition to persecute for opinion's sake has been manifested by wicked men, whatever may have been their opinions or sentiments or religious subjects. The point is this, opposition to the gospel has always been happening since the very first. So this is my first encouragement and exhortation to you, River City Church, because opposition to the gospel is the expectation and not the exception. We don't need to be surprised when it happens. Like, I'm certainly not cheering for opposition to ramp up in Dubuque. Even Jesus says, right, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. He's not saying find persecution. Like, that's silly. But we simply cannot be surprised that if all the prophets were persecuted or put to death, if every apostle was martyred for their faith, and if the one we claim as Lord and Savior was crucified, and if the 2,000-year history of the church is marked by suffering, We should fully expect to encounter it ourselves. And friends, this brings me to my second exhortation for you. You see, over the centuries, Christians have tried a lot of different ways to avoid this kind of suffering and persecution. And one of the ways is by gaining power. And it has always ended poorly. You see, the gospel... It works through influence, not through power, because it transforms from the inside out, not the outside in. When Jesus stood on trial before Pilate, in John chapter 18, verse 36, he had this to say, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders. But as it is, it is not of this world. I want to be like really careful and compassionate here. I promise you I am not trying to serve derision, and I know how politics can be so divisive. And I want to affirm that democracy and voting, these are freedoms God has afforded us that we should be very thankful for. I don't take that lightly. And as we look around and see the direction things are going, it's very easy to be afraid. However, for those of us who are looking for a politician or a policy to free us from the trials of following Jesus, I need you to hear this. You're looking for the cavalry to come over the wrong hill. 
Your peace, your joy, your vindication, and mine comes on a white horse when Jesus returns in glory, not at the next election. If we believe the gospel is the very word of God, if we believe that it changes people from the inside out, if we believe that it is powerful and effective in people's lives, then we can endure opposition with hope and we can stop focusing for the struggle for power in this life. Third, there's some of you in this room who don't know if you believe the gospel is the word of God or if it's just a man-made idea. I'm so happy you're here. (laughs) This church was planted to reach people who don't know if they love and believe in Jesus yet. And River City and small groups especially are a really safe place for your process and your questions and your doubts. This is a safe place to have questions. This is a safe place to not be a believer. But I want to challenge you this morning. Because there is no neutral ground with Jesus, you are going to have to decide if the gospel is God's word or if it's a man-made human idea. Finally, if you're anything like me, you often feel a sense of guilt and fear when discussing persecution. Right? I've never really dealt with, personally, violent opposition to my faith. And when I hear Paul encouraging Christians who are dealing with that, and the stories of their faith, or the book of the martyrs, I'm deeply troubled, because I often feel guilty that I've had it relatively easy. Well, certainly I've had to give things up to follow Jesus. I've never been violently opposed, arrested, or threatened. But the truth you and I need to hear this morning is the gospel. You and I are not saved by how much suffering we endure. We're saved by how much suffering Jesus endured. We're saved by his death, his resurrection, not ours. So you can let go of your guilt when it comes to talking about this topic because no matter how costly it has been for you to follow Jesus, he is the one who saves. Again, if you're like me, you may be afraid when it comes to talking about this idea of persecution. The thought of being arrested or tortured or killed, the thought of having to choose between faith in Jesus and enduring opposition like this, it wrecks your brain, it keeps you up at night, it's scary, and you want to avoid talking about it altogether. I know I do. The whole idea can be so overwhelming, but the truth that you and I need to hear is this. Jesus is not after super intense, macho people who are set in their own convictions and they know that they can face the fire. No. Jesus is after people who are going to trust and look to him to provide everything they need. From their salvation, to the endurance of opposition, to everything else. People who have a childlike dependence on him who know they cannot do it on their own. You see, this need of ours, it was met on the cross. And this is the thing we celebrate every week as we gather to worship Jesus, and take communion, right? So for those who have trusted in Jesus, there are those who believe that the gospel is the very word of God. When we're singing later on and responding and celebrating, that's a chance for you to go back to the table on the left or the right when you're ready and, and dip the bread in the juice and take it in remembrance of everything Jesus has done for you. But if that's not you this morning... If you're still trying to decide if the gospel is the very word of God or just a man-made idea, again, we're so happy you're here. And your doubts and your fears and your questions are so welcome. But 
hold off on taking communion because God isn't after like empty religious rituals, right? It's after you. So we wrap up this morning. There's a story I wanted to share. My, uh, my dad subscribes to this magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. Um, and there's an article I found in it a couple years ago that I feel like speaks to this issue so clearly. I just wanted to share it. The article begins saying, many Christians are afraid. They are afraid as they watch American culture and society continually turn away from the biblical teachings and Christian values they hold dear. The problem with this attitude is that the Bible says not to be afraid. Then goes on to share a couple stories of persecuted Christians, and it shares the story of this woman named Shani. And her location is kept very vague, and her name has been changed out of protection for her and her family. But it, it says this. Shani's husband was the leader of a house church in the Middle East until one day he simply disappeared. And for three months, she had no idea what happened to him. Dear God, Shani prayed one night. Please make them not come and arrest me. I'm not strong like my husband. I can't handle torture. And if they try to, I will give up the name of every Christian I know, and I'm sure I will deny my faith altogether. But the next morning at 6 a.m., the police are slamming on her door, and they've come to arrest her. God, I told you I can't handle this, she said. Whatever happens next, it's your fault. In the middle of the night, the guards pulled her out of her cell which smelled like a sewer. You see, Shani had grown up wealthy in a wealthy family. She'd grown up comfortable, and she was not used to this kind of treatment at all. And they pulled her out of her cell into an interrogation room, and the interrogator on the other end of the table looked furious. Why did you evangelize, he demanded. Why did you talk about Jesus to Muslims? Don't you know that's illegal here? She could barely whimper in her fear, dear God. She prayed, she felt God's presence and peace fill her. And Shani looked at the interrogator. She said, you know what? I have a right to evangelize. This is a commandment from Jesus. Everyone needs to hear this good news. You need to hear it too. God sent me here to tell you about him. You are a poor man. I feel bad for you. You don't even know why you're alive. The only way to truth is through Jesus. You are an interrogator, but one day you will stand before the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ, and he will examine you. Without him, there is no hope for you. And he's going to ask you, why did you do this to my servants? With this, the interrogator became even angrier. He threatened her and sent her away and said, I'll deal with you tomorrow. Shani, back in her cell, was like, Lord, what did I do? How could I have been so stupid? Why did I say all this stuff? What was I thinking? And she decided to apologize to the interrogator and take it all back the next time she saw him. The following night, the guards dragged her out of her cell and into the interrogation room again. And despite her plan, the Holy Spirit again filled her, and she acted by preaching the gospel to this interrogator once again. After the third interrogation... Shani went back to her cell, hoping to give her mind a rest and fall asleep. You see, despite the stench, or because of the stench, she hadn't slept in three days since her arrest. But in the middle of the night, she heard a knock in her cell door. And to her surprise, it wasn't the guard. It was the interrogator. Let me come in, he said. Shani was terrified. Was he coming to beat her or even kill her because of her disrespect towards him? Don't worry, he said calmly. I'm not going to harm you. 
I want to ask you for a favor. Would you pray for me tonight? The interrogator entered Shani's cell with tears in his eyes. He said, did you know that God sent you at this particular time in my life? The past three days, I've been going through hell. How did you know that my life is so crazy and messed up? I tried everything in my religion, and I could never seem to be happy, but I learned today that the only Savior is Jesus Christ. When you were talking in the interrogation room, that wasn't really you. I saw myself in God's presence. Please help me to be saved. And the interrogator stayed in Shani's jail cell for three hours. And before he left, he placed his trust in Jesus. And then he ordered the release of both Shani and her husband, who was still alive, on the secret condition that they meet to disciple him. He even gave them advice on how they could continue to evangelize without getting caught. The truth is, church, Shani's story is not unique among those who have been persecuted. If you start diving into these stories, what you're going to find really quickly are things that are unexpected and even shocking. Peace and hope and joy that are absolutely making no earthly sense in the circumstances. It's because the gospel is not a man-made word. It is the very word of God. See, friends, like we don't need to feel guilty because Jesus takes away our guilt. And we don't need to consolidate political power because Jesus is on his throne. We don't need to be afraid because the truth we have believed is God's word and it is at work. When the night is at its darkest, that is when Jesus shines the brightest. See, if we believe the gospel is the very word of God, when we see that Jesus has borne all of our sin, when we see how desperately he loves undeserving people like you and me, we will be empowered to expect and endure opposition with hope. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for making a way for us to be with you again through the gospel, God. Thank you so much for sending your son to suffer and die in our place. God, I just pray that our church would be marked by not fear, but by hope and in trust in you. As we look to your return, I pray that we would believe that the gospel is the very word of God. I pray for our friends in this room who don't believe that yet, and that they would, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you, trusting you will provide everything that they need. And God, we just pray this for your glory and for our joy. Amen.